the idea of these Thursday nights is that every month we cycle through four different focus type things. So on the third Thursday, which is today, we want to focus on teaching. So we get into some slightly deeper teaching, expand our grasp of what God's done for us. So tonight we're going to talk about the atonement, because today is the Day of Atonement. I don't plan that, but there it is. Uh, so today is Yom Kippur. Uh, Jane's Jewish rabbi friend tells me, because for some reason he's got my cell phone number, he sends me WhatsApp things. It's the Orthodox rabbi that Jane used to do their music garden classes. It's wonderful. I mean, he's the real deal. He's got you know, the beard and the, all the... So anyway, he, he sent out a thing, and I, I'm on his list somehow. <laughs> so Yom Kippur concludes at 7.57 this evening. So there we go. We've got another you know, 50 minutes or so before the end of the Day of Atonement. So um, and let me pass out a handout for you, because I want, to, I want to kind of cover a lot of ground, and I've tried to put all of the references on here. Okay, so what I want to do is to stretch our understanding of what Jesus has done for us. Get it bigger, okay? Because my guess is most of us have been following Jesus for a while. Some of us longer than others. Um, I've been following Jesus for more than 40 years. <laughs> Suddenly hit me the other day. It's like, oh, wow, that's a long time. <laughs> but... Um, even the name Jesus means God saves, doesn't it? Okay, Yeshua in Hebrew means God saves. Um, so what we mean by salvation is that God does for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came in person to, to rescue us. But we'll often misunderstand what Jesus did as... Jesus had to die on the cross to, to cancel out sin and to turn away the wrath of God from us as sinners so that we could get to heaven. And I want to expand that. Yes, that is part of what he did, but I want to expand that to much bigger so we have a bigger picture of what Jesus has done for us in the atonement. Okay. So the incarnation where Jesus becomes a human being, which we those of us who follow the traditional calendar, which we all know isn't the accurate calendar, but anyway, it's coming up, isn't it? You know, uh, we celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas. But then you've also got the passion of Jesus, that's his suffering and his crucifixion. But then you've also got the resurrection. And if you put them all together, the incarnation, the life of Jesus, the passion of Jesus and the resurrection, that is what the Bible refers to as the finished work of Christ. So when Jesus said it's finished on the cross, he's referring to that, um, that completion of it all. So it's John 19. That's a reference that's not on your notes. I apologize. I thought of this afterwards. But John 19, 28 to 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there, and they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So, pardon me? 
John 19, 28 through 30. So then our kind of, what I intended to be our kickoff uh, verses was from 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, that talks about um, what Jesus has done. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And everything else I'm going to say tonight, I want to kind of expand what Paul says in those verses so that your heart begins to catch a a bigger picture of what Jesus has done. When he talks about reconciliation, uh, the Greek word there, katalasso, literally means... um, reaching down and changing it's a it's a like you would you would grab somebody out of a swimming pool who's drowning kind of um word so it means that it's god reaching down to change us humans from being enemies of god to being back into union with god being reconciled with god Um, and that that's the the place where a lot of english bibles will use the word atonement um, which is a made-up word. It was created when they started translating the Bible into English, so I gather. I can't prove that because I haven't done enough research, but apparently Wycliffe and some of those other translators created this word at one where we are literally made at one with God, and that's the word we now say as atonement. So it's making us one with God, which is how we started, of course. Adam and Eve, when they were, well, they weren't called Adam and Eve, but the man and the woman, when they were first created, were at one with God. They, they had fellowship with God before the fall. And it's that separation that we're talking about when we talk about the atonement. It's restoring that unity with God, that, that um, uniting with God. Unfortunately, the, the Western Protestant church has kind of reduced getting saved into a transactional term. Over history, I'm not pointing fingers at any one person in particular, but we tend to reduce it down to, have you, um, have you been saved? Are you born again? Uh, have you made the transaction where um, I pray a prayer and that results in Jesus saving me from God's anger against sin, God's wrath, God's judgment. But in the end, that's an, uh, that's an inaccurate picture of atonement. It's too small for the whole of what God has done. Largely because if I take that to its extreme, it puts the control of whether I get saved with me. If I don't pray a prayer, I don't get saved. In other words, it's not by grace, it's by my works. Well, the Bible very clearly tells us that's not the way we get saved. So I can't get saved by praying a prayer. 
you've all gone very quiet. <laughs> but there is that, right? So when we're saved by grace alone, it has to come from God and not from whether I've done something right or wrong. Now, let me, I'll come to that in just a second. Let me say here, okay, I'll say this again at the end, but there are two ditches we don't want to fall into on this road that we're traveling. On the one side, we don't want to fall into the ditch of saying that we're universalist, that God will save everybody in the end and it'll all be fine, right? But we also don't want to fall into the other ditch of saying everyone's going to hell unless they pray the prayer right. We don't want to be eternal damnationists <laughs> or universal damnationists as opposed to universal salvationists, okay? Those are the two ditches on the sides of the road and we're trying to drive down between. RJ, question. Okay, so then how does you have to believe, which is an action, that Christ died for your sins in order to be reconciled? How does that apply to what you're saying? It is, it, yeah. Believing doesn't achieve atonement. Believing accepts atonement. Okay. That's good. Okay. okay. Well, I'll unpack a bit more of that in a minute. So, true biblical salvation. Hi there. Have you got some more handouts? Huh? True biblical salvation is what God has done what God is doing and what God will do through Jesus, through, through Christ, in us, on our journey towards our union with him again. That's the whole picture of salvation. Greek word is sozo. That means a lot more than just, you know, stamping your fire insurance. <laughs> so we want to... Um, just visit briefly a variety of atonement theories. Let me explain what I mean by atonement theories. We've said what reconciliation and salvation is, and we'll look at it a bit more in a minute, but when we try to put language to something that we can't fully understand, we come up with these theories of how to describe it. Okay? And we've been doing that since the church started. Um, but we're only going to fully understand it when we see God face to face in eternity. So we can't fully describe in, in a simple, um, all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, and we tie it up with a bow and put it in a box and give it to somebody. <laughs> it's always going to be bigger than that. And my goal tonight is to help your brain to be kind of blown open a bit so that you catch more of what God has done for us. But there are a number of atonement theories down through the centuries, and I've listed them there for you. The early church fathers, the, the, the sort of the, the leaders of the church in the very early centuries, the, you know, 100, 200 AD, including Origen, who was the first, um, funny that a guy called Origen would be the origin of theology, but uh, anyway, Origen was the first kind of thoughtful theologian guy who kind of put it all together in a structure that could be taught to other people. But they came up with this thing called the ransom theory, which says that Jesus paid the ransom for our sin. Which is true, but it's not the whole picture. The problem with all of these theories is if I hold on to one theory and make it what I believe and throw away all the others, I end up with error rather than help. <laughs> um, 
Each one of these has something to teach us, but each one of these could also take us off into one of those two ditches I described if we're not careful. Okay, so I want you to try and embrace all of these and, and hold on to the whole picture and, and let Holy Spirit kind of blow your mind a little bit as we do it. Because you see, some of the early church fathers thought that the ransom was paid to Satan when Jesus died. Because Satan was the one who had a hold on us. And so you pay a ransom to release us. <laughs> we'll come back to that later on. But it's not true. <laughs> then you've got Irenaeus. Uh, he's the next one on your list there. He comes up with a different theory that kind of um, says, no, 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 this isn't a ransom being paid. This is called recapitulation, which is where uh, our course of disobedience away from God is turned around by Jesus into obedience toward God. So recapitulation is just a change of direction going in an opposite direction. Yeah. So he says that's what's really going on in the atonement, where God identifies with man through Jesus, therefore man identifies with God through Jesus, and we all turn around and go back the right way again. Now there's helpful insight in that, but that in itself isn't the whole of what Jesus did either. It's a theory, but it doesn't adequately describe all of it. So then if you fast forward, you know, give or take a thousand years or so, Anselm, who was another theologian um, in 10, he, well, he, he died in 1109, so yeah, the first century of the second millennium. He comes up with this uh, theory called the satisfaction theory that says that God is offended by sin and he can only be satisfied by Jesus' perfect death. So God is offended by sin and Jesus' death satisfies that offense. Kind of like... You know, you step in something on the sidewalk um, and it offends you um, and you have to go and change your shoes or wash it off or something. I will say propitiation has a part to play in all that. Yes, it does. Obviously, you know all that. But you know, I don't know Jesus all that. Blood, I, my you know my brain's being blown just as much as blood, yours is. Yeah. <laughs> in right. that the blood propitiates. Yes, it indeed. It does satisfy that which we were due to receive due to sin. Yes. So. Yeah. And so all of these factors are part of the picture, but they're only part of the picture. Uh, that's, that's my goal, is to help right, us sure, see the, sure. the yeah, yeah. bigger picture. Um, and as I put on your notes there, you're going to need to read each of these references for yourself to really kind of grasp where I'm going with some of this. But, um, so that was the satisfaction um, theory. And then there's another guy called Abelard who comes along a couple of decades later and he has uh, another theory that disagrees. So just like we had the first two, you know, one says it's a ransom, the other says no, no, it's a, it's a recapitulation. Now we've got the satisfaction theory and Abelard comes back with the moral influence theory that says that, that Jesus' death was primarily a demonstration of God's love. That God is showing us how much he loves us by dying for us. In other words, it's not that we're satisfying offence, it's that God is expressing love through the cross. And then uh, fast forward another half a century or so, you get to Calvin in, in the uh, 16th century. He added the, the, the theory that maybe most of us are familiar with, the penal substitution theory. So that's the one that says that Jesus must die to satisfy God's wrath against sinners. In other words, Jesus is the substitute 
who pays the penalty in the court of law for the crime of sin. And that's the, that's the most prevalent Western modern <coughs> view of the atonement, or theory of the atonement, if you like. Um, so interesting that that one's a lot more recent than the other theories that came before it. But I also want to um, encourage you to move beyond the understanding of the atonement that just shrinks it down to Jesus died to save us from the wrath of God. It's much bigger than that. There is a part that Robert's right, propitiation where the, the shed blood of Jesus achieves something is true. But it's not the whole picture uh, that God wants us to, to grasp. And I think as we do grasp a bigger picture, we're actually drawn closer to God and not further away from him. So, let me see what I want to say here. Yeah, let me say this. And you, want, you might want to scribble this down, but the, the cross is God's rejection of wrath as a solution to sin. I'll explain that um, a bit later on. But I think it's important that we grasp that. Um, because if we reduce the atonement to just a, a transaction, a death on the cross, then we're going to miss a lot of what Jesus did. So, for example... As I put in your notes there, Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in Revelation 13, verse 8, it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship uh, the lamb. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. So uh, Jesus uh, is, is slain from the beginning before God said, Let there be light. Now, don't expect to understand that with your human brain fully but let it show you there's a, there's a lot more in play than just on Good Friday on the cross God fixed something that went wrong it's a much bigger picture than that uh, interesting First Peter <coughs> 1 there the other um, reference I put verse P First Peter 1 verses 19 and 20 with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you so there's an element in the atonement where the incarnation is very significant where Jesus becoming a human being God combining humanity and divinity in one person um, but then also we see a lot of what the atonement is about in the life of Jesus. So it's not just that he, he had to sort of hang around for three years after he became known so that he could be killed. He was achieving a lot through his life. Um, so in John 10, when the Jews say they're going to stone him because he's claiming to be God... <laughs> which, okay, you know, they were, the, they were the theology police at the time <laughs> and they thought that he'd got it wrong and therefore they needed to kill him off, but they misunderstood what God was doing. And so um, they said, it's not for a good work we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? So he's using the law. It's actually Psalm 82, verse 6. He's using their own law to refute their argument. 
he's saying to them, you know, your, your own law says that you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. That's Psalm 82, verse 6. And so he then goes on to say, um, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus is taking Psalm 82, verse 6 and saying, I am here, God and man, doing the works of my Father, demonstrating what it is to live in obedience to the Father here on earth as a human being. And in doing that, he's achieving part of the atonement because it's, re- it's reconciling humanity with divinity. So the atonement starts in Jesus. And the atonement has always been part of God's plan. Let me throw another thing out that I believe when I was first saved. It was like everything was good until Adam and Eve messed it up and then God had to go, oops, what should we do now? <laughs> hey, Jesus, would you mind... <laughs> you know, it's going to be terrible, but would you mind? You know, so we can get them back again. It's not like your cat got out or your dog ran away. <laughs> Sorry for the pet owners. You know, but it, it, it's not God going, oh, who left the door open? <laughs> this is all planned in God's heart from the very beginning. And if we begin to grasp that with our hearts, my goal, my hope is that we'll begin to be more um, secure in who we are in him because of what he's already done to bring us back to him. But also in our reaching out to others, we'll have much more to offer. Okay, so let's avoid some ditches again. Psalm 82 verse 6 doesn't mean that we are God. Okay, it says... Uh, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. It doesn't even mean we're equal to God, but Peter explains it in his second letter, Second Peter 1, verse 4. Um, did I put that in there? Thank you. Yes, there we go. We are partakers of the divine nature. Second Peter 1 verse 4 says, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So if you look back into the early writings after the, the New Testament was kind of completed, the early church fathers, if you like, what they wrote, they say that we're... Um, we're restored to eternal incorporation in the Godhead by what Jesus has done. In other words, we are reconciled, we are reunited with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want a technical term for that, that's called theosis. I didn't know that until I started researching tonight, but there you go, there's a fancy word you can use on people. Have you experienced theosis? Because it's your inheritance in Jesus. You're reunited with God. So when Holy Spirit lives in us, when we know God as our Father, when we know Jesus as our Saviour, we're reunited into where we were originally created for. So the atonement in those sort of terms has to be much more than just a transactional kind of death to somehow short-circuit the, the wrath of God. Uh, is, there's much more to it. The problem with atonement theories is that theologians can get really attached to their pet theory. <laughs> And we don't want to do that. 
we want to try and embrace all of those. You know, I, I loved how several of you were sort of saying, but, you know, when, when I was outlining the there's this and then there's that, I'm not saying one is right and the other's wrong. Actually, both are wrong and both are right. <laughs> it's how we pull it all together that, that really matters. So don't be like some theologians have, have been in the past, that you become so attached to your, your pet theory that, that anybody who doesn't agree with you is a heretic. <laughs> you know, um, I mean, you, if you review church history, there's all these excommunications going on because whoever's in charge in this place doesn't agree with whoever's in charge in that place. And, and they're all excommunicating each other because they can't agree and they can't actually hold different things together into one, uh, one thing, one story. So let's take care not to be so sure that we're right that we get to be wrong. OK, the gospel and I don't mean the Gospels. There are four Gospels that are part of the Gospel. Everybody happy with that? The Gospel is the good news of what Jesus has done. Right. So the Gospel is true. Atonement theories are man's attempt to explain something and therefore are not necessarily fully true or true of everything. Make sense? But the gospel is the story of how Jesus came to reveal God's love and God's mercy and how he accomplished God's atoning work through his life, through his death and through his resurrection. So those atonement theories that we listed are just human efforts to explain that, that mystery. We'll never fully grasp the mystery of what I just said, but we can at least explain it in that way. You notice then that we move on to biblical metaphors. As we read through the New Testament, there are different metaphors that are used to shed light on what Jesus is doing in the atonement to reconcile us to God. So Jesus employs metaphors to describe the gospel. The other, the, the gospel writers use metaphors. We'll get on to Paul a bit later on as well in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, but let's look through some of those metaphors, because every one of these metaphors sheds light on it for us. But every one of these metaphors is a little bit like the pictures on the wall here. They just give you a glimpse of one bit. You know, so you look over there and there's the, the ocean and there's a ship on the ocean and there's fear not written in the waves as it washes on the beach. So it's clearly there's a picture of God's love washing towards us saying, Fear not, perfect love washes away fear. And it's a great picture for a, a, a church like us that's by the beach. Or you look at this picture over here and here's a, a, an impression of an angel. And you might look at that and, and be aware that there's an angelic realm that we often will encounter uh, when God is on the move because the angels are his messengers to help us uh, to embrace what God is doing and to see what God is doing. You know? so, but none of, and then look at this picture over here behind me. Um, and it's a picture of a tree with all kinds of different birds in it. It's a metaphor of the church where, you know, whether you're a, whether you're a, a duck or a peacock, you've got a place, <laughs> you know, um, and, or a turkey. <laughs> I bagged the turkey. But, um, you know, we've all got a place in the branches. Um, and, and so each of these is like a metaphor and so are these biblical metaphors that we're going to look at. Okay, it shines light on something, but it's not the whole picture. So we've got to be very careful not to hold one, one metaphor as a proof text for our favorite atonement theory, if you like. Try to let it expand your understanding. Key thought from tonight, the atonement is bigger than that. 
whatever that is. The atonement's bigger than that. So let's talk about some biblical metaphors. First one would be the lost and found metaphor. Um, so in Luke 19, talking to Nicodemus, Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I don't mean Nicodemus, do I? I mean Zacchaeus. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong New Testament name. I apologize. Zacchaeus. Salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, Zacchaeus has got lost. He's lost the plot. He's born a Jew. He's an inheritor of the promises to Abraham, but he goes off and he serves the Romans. He turns his back on his own people. And he's a tax collector who's swindling people. And, and he's lost. But Jesus comes and says, hey, come on down. I want to come and eat at your house. Now, by the Jews' understanding, the Messiah is not supposed to do that because he's supposed to come in and he's supposed to kill off all the ungodly. And by changing sides, Zacchaeus belongs with the ungodly. But Jesus is saying, no, no, this guy is also a son of Abraham and I've come to find him because he's lost. So lost and found is part of the biblical metaphor of reconciliation and of atonement. And of course, you've got Luke 15, three stories, three parables of things being found. You've got the lost coin you've got the lost sheep and you've got the lost son and all three of those are stories about being found and jesus says in the first two the coin and the sheep he says about that there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance or in the in the other one it's about the angels will rejoice over the one that gets found so what he's telling us there is that repentance means to be found it's to turn around and be found. <laughs> now, there's nothing in those stories about an angry God who needs to be appeased in order that we can come back into relationship with him. Important that we remember that. There isn't anything there about retribution to be able to forgive sin. Another biblical metaphor is uh, the, the great physician. So in uh, Mark 2, verse 17... Jesus says, and again, he's talking to the religious leaders who are condemning him for who he hangs out with. He's hanging out with all the wrong people, by their view. Um, he says to the religious leaders, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, of course, with our perspective 2,000 years later, we can see that actually the religious leaders were probably the sickest of the lot because <laughs> they hadn't been diagnosed yet. <laughs> but the metaphor is still there that sin is a disease. Sin is a cancer in our spirit. It's a fatal disease. And Jesus is saving us from that disease like a physician. So he says, I've come to call sinners because they're sick. I've come to heal the sick. I've come to bring salvation from the, the disease of sin. And it's interesting how he does it, because remember they're condemning him for who he's eating and drinking with. So Jesus is saying, I'm saving you from this fatal disease by coming and eating and drinking with you, hanging out with you, showing you how to live life. 
enjoying life with you. So he's already saving us through his ministry. He doesn't have to wait till just the cross. Yeah, the cross has got a vital, pivotal role to play, but there's much more to the atonement. There's atonement in a meal. Had you thought of that? I hadn't until I got these notes together, but there's atonement in when Jesus comes and eats and drinks with us. That's partly why we celebrate communion every Sunday. It's because it's remembering that Jesus wants to eat and drink with us. So that's the great physician. Another uh, metaphor in the Gospels is of the serpent lifted up. This is Nicodemus. I got my Zacchaeus and my Nicodemus in the wrong sections here. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, who obviously was he was known as Israel's teacher. He was the he was the wise one who understood the scriptures really well. But Jesus says to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So he's referring to Numbers 21. Anybody remember what happened when Moses had to lift up the serpent in the wilderness? Mm -hmm. They all got healed if they looked to the serpent, if they trusted that looking at this serpent would heal them, right? Because they were sick. (laughs) This is a continuation, if you like, of the sickness metaphor. Jesus is saving us from the sickness that's killing us by being lifted up. John 12, the other reference that's there in your notes, is Jesus saying, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus is the bronze serpent on the pole. That's an interesting thought for us because we tend to think of serpents, especially when they drop down out of the door frame of our sheds, we tend to think of them as a representation of the enemy. <laughs> but actually there was a serpent that was lifted up that by looking to that serpent you could be healed. It was a, a prophetic act It was an act of trust and of faith. And so it's fine to say that Jesus is also a serpent because he represents, he's a model, if you like, of what the problem was. And by looking to him, we see the solution. Couldn't couldn't that bear, it's got to bear an aspect also that he was made sin with our sin. And it represents that place on the cross. Mm-hmm. And also that he bore our sins, you know, right. being a sin sacrifice, you know, in our place. It's got to, it's got to have that aspect to it as well. For sure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And as you look at that, the sacrifice taking your place, you can become made just and made right with God because you see your sin being put on the sinless Son of God, you know. Yeah. It's all a question of what you see. It's all a question of what you see. Because if you look to the serpent, if you look to the Son of Man, that's trusting that he has the solution that you need. What he's saying is that that sin, um, which is a consequence of disobedience, that's what the sin was that the snake was lifted up for. They disobeyed and they were all dying because of it. But looking... And trusting the one who's lifted up is the solution to the sin of disobedience, which is true for all of us, right? (laughs) 
Yes. Same principle. It's good. I'm, I'm hoping as we go through this that all kinds of other verses are, are pinging in your head. <laughs> um, because life comes from looking. Mark DuPont said that at the weekend, didn't he? He was actually quoting Ruth Heflin, but that's where she got that from, I believe. There's life comes from looking. That's why Jesus is saying that, uh, you know, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That's true. Yeah. Yes. Well, I can't imagine anybody truly looking at Jesus and not responding. You can't escape that scripture too. It says, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Yes. You know, as you look at him, you become more like him. Totally. You know, that's really good. Yeah. But I can't make that happen. I can look, but the change comes from the snake, not from me. (laughs) Okay, let's move on to another metaphor. The atonement. Right. I I get you, Jennifer. No, I struggle with that too. But when we talk about healing, you know, um, Jamie would know this, you know, on all the ambulances, (laughs) there's a snake on a pole. And, you know, depending on whose version you believe, you can trace it off into all kinds of mythology. But actually, most theologians believe it starts with the the serpent on the pole that Moses was instructed to put there. So, fascinating. I think God sometimes loves to put in things that help us not to think we've got it all figured out, that, you know, all serpents are the enemy. (laughs) No, no, Jesus is the serpent on the pole as a metaphor. Um, It is a metaphor. You know, so don't build a whole theology on it. <laughs> Anything where I take one one principle and build my whole theology on it is almost certainly going to be error. Like I said earlier, my goal tonight is to blow your brains wide open with, oh wow, it's much bigger than I thought it was, because that's where I've got to with this. But the point at the end of that is really the one thing you need to lift up is Jesus. Totally. Yes. If Jesus is lifted up and we look to Him. The verse that Robert quoted so beautifully is true for us. We get transformed into his image. It is very interesting that he used a serpent. Well, they, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? The, at the very beginning, the serpent was on God's side. It's just he chose not to. So, is it just so before? This is a, he's representing the unspoiled. I'm not going to chase this squirrel any further than just releasing it, but you can do your own research later. Um, The word that we translate serpent simply means shining one. So it's not necessarily a snake. Just like it wasn't an apple. It was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, So sometimes we get these pictures that have been passed down to us of what it looks like and actually we miss something by that so shining one refers to lucifer 
who was the worship leader in heaven. But that's a squirrel we don't want to chase because we're well, talking about the atonement. So real quick that goes with that. Go ahead, Robert. The Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, yep. Lucifer comes from the word luminous. Yes. And luminous doesn't produce light in and of itself. It takes light from, from its surroundings, whatever it might be, right. and puts it out. Yes. It's pretty accurate. It's more of a reflection yeah, than a generation. light in and of yep. itself. He just... Totally. Takes it from around it and then makes it seem like it's coming from him. He's an angel. Yes. Disguises himself as an angel of light. Yeah, exactly. So if you're attracted in to, to diving down that rabbit hole, I'd recommend a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. I'll give you the details of that later. It's not on your notes because I didn't anticipate that squirrel running through the room. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that's fine. Back to metaphors. Okay, and remember, each of these is purely a metaphor. It's shining a light for us to see something. And as we gather them all together, hopefully our understanding gets expanded. But the metaphor that's right the way through all four of the Gospels, but particularly in John, is that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's John 1, 29. John the Baptist says to his followers, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then verse 36, he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So the connection there is to the scapegoat in Leviticus chapter 16, where God gave Israel this ceremony to do with two goats. And there's a, there's a, a goat that's sent away with their sins on, to give them a visual aid of God is carrying your sins away and it goes off into the wilderness and is never seen again but the yeah <laughs> you know, yeah, right. No, exactly. Well, Jesus, Jesus is both goats. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, because, again, they're pictures to show us something, to teach us something, uh, rather than the whole story in one truth. But the second goat is, is killed, and the blood is given to God as a thank offering for the mercy that they're receiving through this ceremony. But then they eat the goat with God. So they basically have a feast. <laughs> so there's a there's a big it's like the the Israelite equivalent of Thanksgiving basically except with a goat and not a turkey. But the one day the one day it's been the scapegoat, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, they tie that cord to it, right? The red cord. Yes. And they wait to see if God has accepted the sacrifice, and the cord would turn white. And oh, I didn't know that part. Prior, okay. That was prior to Jesus on the cross. And right. so last night, you know, with um, uh, Day of Atonement, we had our own, we had our service over tonight. So anyway, yes. we were talking about this. And um, and it was, Jim brought it up that um, after Jesus died on the cross, there were a lot of things that happened, like, you know, the tearing of the veil. Mm-hmm. And then it is said that the cord no longer turned white. Oh, wow. Because, obviously... Because there's no need anymore. Exactly. It's all done. there were many things like that Mm -hmm. that happened along the way that they stopped doing it. Wow. That's great. Thank you. (laughs) So, when we talk about Jesus being the one who's our scapegoat, he took our sin outside the camp to the cross so that we can now sit down thankfully with God 
and enjoy the fullness of what Jesus has, has bought for us. But interestingly, Paul reverses the picture in Romans 3. So if you look at Romans 3, 24 through 26, it says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there's that propitiation word that Robert uh, referred us to earlier. But you see who's doing the offering here. This is not us making an offering to God now and and being thankful for what he's giving us in return. This is God presenting the offering and we are receiving the sacrifice. So we're getting this meal of restoration because Jesus is our scapegoat who's carried our sin away. And God is presenting that propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So faith is receiving what God has already done. Like we said before, Christian. So the model I try to get in my head is God's done all the work, I get all the benefit, but I reach out to receive what God is offering. So I accept it, but it's not my action that causes it to be effective. It's what God has already done that causes it to be effective, but it's only effective if I receive it being effective. Did you catch that? But again, there's nothing there about um, Jesus being the sacrifice that pays the price for uh, turning away the anger of God. But rather, um, he carries the sin away so that we can come back in to celebrate with God, to be uh, restored, if you like. Um, and First John 2 verse 2 is the third Uh, reference I've put there for you and that extends that atonement to the whole world it says he is the propitiation for our sins we're on familiar ground there but let this blow your mind not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world now remember there is a ditch on this highway that says that everyone's going to get saved whether they like it or not that's not true (laughs) but there's a lot more salvation available than we sometimes give God credit for (laughs) because the sin of the whole world has been propitiated has been paid for through the death of jesus okay let's move along a little faster because i'm realize the time is going another metaphor very similar but different from the one we just used of the atoning sacrifice is that jesus is the the lamb of god so the new testament never calls jesus the scapegoat i know we just called him that as a as a, a visual but he's called the lamb of god so we're talking here not about the uh the the day of atonement we're talking about the passover john 19 verse 14 it was the day of preparation of the passover in other words the day the lambs would be killed and about the sixth hour Pilate says to the jews behold your king so in other words they're going to kill the lamb of god on the day that the lambs are killed for the passover And 
First Corinthians 5 talks about Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. But in the Passover, the lamb is not a punishment for sin or an offering to take away sin. Important that we catch this. In the Passover, the lamb is an identifying sign of God's covenant with his people. So it's the people who are already in covenant with God who take a lamb and bring it into their home and care for it and then kill it. And they put the blood on the doorposts before they then eat with God as the Passover happens. And the, the blood that is a sign of I am in covenant with God, we are in covenant with God, that sign of covenant is what causes the passing over. So the judgment... Um, in that tenth plague, the plague of death, the judgment is against the gods of Egypt. The judgment is not on God's covenant people. God judges the gods of Egypt so that his people can be set free. Exodus 12 verse 12 is what says, um, I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night. I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. But also, don't imagine that it's God doing the killing. Because it says in verse 23 of Exodus 12, The Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. So the killing is being done by the destroyer for the purposes of God, to set his people free. And Jesus tells us who the destroyer is in John 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So when we use the metaphor that Jesus is the Lamb of God, it's about us being identified as covenantally connected with God. And God won't allow the enemy to destroy in our homes. Now, that's a lot bigger than Jesus died on the cross because God was angry with my sin, at least in my heart. I don't know if I can. <laughs> when we talk about Jesus being an atoning sacrifice, it's a symbol and, a, and a, uh, a sign that we are in covenantal relationship with God. And it means that the enemy does not have the right to destroy in our households. That's what it means for Jesus to be the Lamb of God. It's the Passover Lamb. It wasn't anything to do with their sin. It was to do with, you're in relationship with me, you're mine, you're chosen by me, and you need to obey me so that I can make sure that the destroyer who, who has the right to destroy all of the ungodly stuff that's been oppressing you doesn't touch you. So sometimes there's massive deliverance for God's people through times of great suffering. For everybody else that's not in my notes but anyway there we go okay um redemption and jubilee so when israel came out of egypt it says that god redeemed them so redemption and jubilee is another biblical metaphor for the atonement deuteronomy 15 verse 15 you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of egypt and the lord your god redeemed you now in the law in leviticus 25 there's a provision for no one to be permanently deprived of liberty or land or livelihood. 
Um, it's called the law of redemption. Mm-hmm. That's what you see operating in the book of Ruth with the kinsman redeemer. But also you've then got the law of jubilee, which says that everything belongs to God. And so every 50 years, everything goes back to where it started <laughs> because it's God's and we're only stewards of it. Um, so because everything is God's, you can't lose what God has given you, at least not permanently. You might lose it temporarily, but you can't lose it permanently. And it's built into the law. And then so when, in Luke 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue and reads the scroll um, of Isaiah 61, he's announcing the year of Jubilee when he says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me and so on. Okay, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the Jubilee is fulfilled when Jesus reads that scripture because Jesus is the Jubilee in person on the earth, setting people free, restoring people back to what they had lost. So again, the atonement is much more than just the sky going dark on Good Friday and Jesus being put in a tomb. The atonement is Jesus walking around and setting people free and bringing them back into the fullness of who they were made to be. So redemption, because the kinsman redeemer, let me put it this way. The year of Jubilee is your worst case scenario. You've got to wait 50 years or, you know, up until the next 50th year for everything to be put right. The kinsman redeemer can kind of short circuit and speed that up. If your closest relative or your your clan leader can redeem you ahead of time. But redemption is two things. It's freedom from bondage. And it's restoration to inheritance and family and, and, and relationship. So there's, a, there's a, a freedom from and a restoration to, all wrapped up in this metaphor of redemption, which, of course, is what happens in the Exodus. God redeems them from slavery and brings them into, restores them to the promised land or gives them the promised land. But also in this metaphor of redemption and metaphor of jubilee, there's a number of other words that we use quite often, all wrapped up within that. Um, so I put those in your notes at the bottom of the page there as well. There's adoption, Romans 8, 23. Um, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that's that sense of adoption being put back into a family um, and again, I don't have time to chase down adoption, but when uh, Andy and Ganilla are here talking about the father's love uh, at the beginning of October, I'm sure they'll talk about adoption. We'll unpack that some more. There's also the metaphor of inheritance uh, is incorporated with this redemption thing. So Hebrews 9 verse 12 says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So there's an inheritance in him. It's eternal because of what he's done. And then you've got the idea of reconciliation as well. That's the restoration to uh, the family and rec- restoration to your inheritance. So, uh, yes, Robert. I can throw this in. You know, there's four Greek words in the New Testament translated redemption. Mm-hmm. And the idea of it, at least from a new, standpoint, a new Testament standpoint, is to buy out of something. Yep. And the explanation I heard that I always thought was good, that when man sinned, he sold himself into slavery to mm-hmm. sin and to the devil. And the only way that man could be free from this slavery was that a free man was going to have to buy him out of it. The problem was there were no free men. 
Mm -hmm. So God was going to have to become a man to pay the price that mankind could not pay in and of himself to buy man out of that slavery. And that price, of course, was the redemption price. He paid the ransom or the redemption price to buy yeah. us back to God. It's good. I always thought that was a good explanation for redemption. I love that. Let me give you another bit that doesn't in any way contradict that, but expands it and puts it in a slightly different context. Because there's a price to pay. And like you say, only a free man can pay that price on behalf of somebody who's not free. But we know that Jesus paid the price, but who did Jesus pay the price to? Remember the ransom theory you talked about at the beginning? Who did Jesus pay the price to? Okay. I, I'm, I won't, for the sake of time, throw it open for, for answers, but let me give you some answers. It, he can't be paying the price to God because Revelation 5 verse 9 says he purchased us for God. Now, he's not going to buy us from God for God. So he's not, the, the price isn't being paid to God. Okay. Um, but there was a price paid and it was a ransom. So let's talk about, let's turn the page over and talk about ransom for a moment. I won't have time to go into all of those um, verses, but Mark 10.45 says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And 1 Timothy 2 verse 6 uh, talks about the, the, the one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we think of a ransom as, as money you pay to a slaveholder or a kidnapper, right? It, you, you pay a ransom to free a hostage or a slave. But actually, if Christ is the ransom, if Jesus is the ransom, we're talking about... Um, a life for a life, not a payment of money. So this isn't a, a, a financial transaction, it's a life for a life, which is what you were saying with the free man is the only one who can free the, the enslaved. So who is the life paid to? Well, we've already said it's not paid to God because God is not the slaveholder. <laughs> mm -hmm. So is it therefore... Uh, well, let me read you Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the slaveholder is Satan in that verse, right? But... The life is not given to Satan. Catch this, because this is big. <laughs> okay? Satan's the slaveholder, but Mark 3, verses 26 and 27, talks about Jesus plundering Satan's house. He's not paying him a ransom, he's plundering his house. <laughs> and so Satan is not the one who gets the price of the life of Jesus. The ransom is paid for death to lose its power. Mm -hmm. Where is your sting? What's gained out of that? The keys of death and of hell. Exactly. Yeah. So the, I, I love the way that C.S. Lewis depicts this in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, those of you who are familiar with the Narnia stories. Aslan, if you remember, who's the picture of Jesus, Aslan 
offers himself in place of Edmund, who's done something wrong, to be killed by the witch on the stone table. And it appears to be a ransom to satisfy the law. You know, Edmund has done something wrong. The law demands he die. Well, Aslan says, I'll die in Edmund's place. So it seems like we're satisfying the law, but actually it's death to whom Jesus is giving his life. So he gives his life to death. But because he has never disobeyed God, death has no hold on him. He's the only human being who death cannot hold. So it looks like death wins, just like it does in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, until you find that Aslan gets resurrected through what Lewis calls the deep magic from before the the dawn of time. Self-giving love is the deep magic. And God, of course, is the one who gives himself to us because he loves us. And so... um, Jesus is stronger than death. He gives his life to death on the cross. But in giving his life to death, he defeats death. And therefore is raised to life. Death came in when Adam and Eve turned away from God. You know, you shall not eat from the fruit of this tree, for in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Almost, it's incumbent on us to like recognize what he's done and, and who, accept it. Yeah. If we're still walking in sin, then we're also the person still. I mean, the ransom is really, he's giving us the ransom. Yes. So it's, it's, like we're the, it's almost like we're the kidnapper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, because. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. Um, so by all means, look up those, those verses about death there, because when Jesus died, it was the gateway into death to plunder death. So Psalm 49, verse 6, God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Uh, and Matthew 27 talks about after the crucifixion, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Ephesians 4 verse 8 when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men and and so on Um, uh, 1 Peter 3 you can read as well and 1 Peter 4 Jesus is the living one it's Revelation 1 17 and 18 I'm the first and the last and the living one I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades So Jesus' life is paid into death as a ransom, and in doing so, death is defeated because death comes from turning away from God. And Jesus is the only human being to that point who never turned away from God. He's always represented authority. Absolutely. Jesus got the authority for mankind back from the devil. Yes. When Adam sinned, he sold himself, and he gave over all of mankind to the devil, but Jesus came to get that back which is why the incarnation is so important as part of the atonement because he has to be fully human oh, absolutely. to yeah, do that. Pay that price unless this is not some kind of spiritual sleight of hand. You know. <laughs> it was the real deal. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to that scene you were just describing, mm-hmm. the, the line that always sticks out to me with that is when the witch says to him, you know, 
a life for a life. Yes. And he says, don't tell me the law. I was there when it was written. That's right. You know, yes. and yeah. Just, if that doesn't make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, I don't know what will. But exactly. yeah, it's right. So it's, it's huge what God has done. And, and I, I hope your heart is catching a bit more of it. Let's do two more real quick and then we'll stop and just have time for any questions you, you might want to ask. Because Paul's letters add a couple more metaphors. And remember, each metaphor just shines light like each of these pictures. It's one part of the whole picture. Uh, but hopefully as we look at these different pictures, it's giving us a bigger um, understanding. So Paul talk, uses the metaphor of victory. So Colossians 2 um, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them, on, put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Jesus conquers Satan and he conquers sin at the cross because he conquers death. He conquers death through his resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he gives us the victory, and this is in Romans 8, gives us the victory by uniting us with his love. So Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is nothing. (laughs) And then in 37 through 39, he says, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that, if you start digging into theology at all, you'll hear about the Christus Victor theory of, of atonement. All it means is Christ is victorious. <laughs> Jesus has already won. <laughs> um, but that is the Christus Victor theory. Um, and it's a good one, because it's true. <laughs> but I hope you've seen there's, there's more to it than just Jesus was victorious on the cross. And then the final uh, metaphor is justification. This is the one where we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't slip into a courtroom understanding where God is the angry judge and Jesus is the, is the defense attorney who says, well, I'll die instead kind of thing. Justification is about someone's character, but also their legal standing. So it's about innocence, but it's also about purity, moral purity. And Romans 3 tells us that there's none righteous and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know that's true, but we mustn't hear the sort of the fiery revival preacher in those verses threatening dire consequences if you don't pray the prayer right now kind of thing. Because that would set loving Jesus against an angry father. (laughs) And we've got to be careful not to go there because our father is not an angry father. He's a loving father. And Jesus is a, a loving son who wants all of us to come back into relationship. But if we read it with care, Romans tells us uh, a very different story. There are four different verses in Romans chapter 1. Uh, I've listed them there for you. Verse 18, verse 24, verse 26 and verse 28 that all refer to God's wrath as a giving over to the consequences of our own choices, our wrong choices. So it's like a parent saying, yeah, go ahead and, and do that, but I told you not to. And then you, you know, whatever, go ahead and touch the stove. 
Um, it's not that the parent is so angry that you want to touch the stove that he pushes you onto it. It's that he lets you go ahead and do the wrong thing that you wanted to do. Catch the difference? That is what Romans describes as the wrath of God against sin. And Romans 5 verses 8 and 9 says we shall be saved from the wrath. Most of the modern English translations say we'll be saved from the wrath of God. But the of God is not there. We'll be saved from the wrath. In other words, we'll be saved from the consequences of our wrong choices. It's not saying that God is sitting in heaven frowning with a big stick waiting to beat you because you got it wrong. I think it's important that we lose that model. Because everything else we've read tonight doesn't support that model. Romans 3 verse 24 says, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So wrath is a consequence of our sin rather than a character trait of God. And God's solution to (coughs) sin and its consequences is to come in the person of Jesus, the incarnation, (coughs) to live a sin-free life and to be killed by humanity. It was us that killed him, right? right? That's the gospel in, in the book of Acts. More often than not, whoever's explaining the gospel says, you know, God gave us this Jesus and you killed him. <laughs> so, but God's answer to sin is to let himself be killed by the sinners and in letting himself be killed, it's almost like he, he empties himself, Philippians 2. He allows himself to be killed by us, but in the process of allowing himself to be killed by us, he becomes the doorway by which we can escape from the trap we've fallen into because he is the only one who can't be killed because he's unkillable. Because <laughs> death is a, is a consequence of turning away from God. So we give Jesus the, the, the final punishment, if you like, which is death. But Jesus is the only one that the final punishment doesn't work on. And so now we can step into the final punishment doesn't work on us either. It's a beautiful switch around that, one, uh, that we'll, we'll never fully understand until we see him face to face. But it's much, much bigger that's why I said earlier that the cross was God's rejection of, of being angry against sin as a solution to it. Um, because God used it as the doorway to unleash grace toward us. And that's the bigger picture of the atonement that I want us to begin to grasp in our hearts. Um, it's a mystery. We will only understand it fully in eternity. But God loves humanity so much that he willingly empties himself of his godness. That's not a word, but you know what I mean. So that he can become a human being, live as one of us, die in our place, beat death, which is the paycheck of sin, <laughs> uh, and then reunite us with God. So here's the truth I'd love you to walk out with tonight. God is not against us because we're sinners. God is for us because we're human. He's not against us because we're sinners. He's for us because we're human. And that, I think, is a far more attractive offer to people 
than if you were to die tonight, do you know where you'd go? Now, I'm not suggesting we don't do that. Some people need to hear it in those terms. But I don't want us to reduce it to that. I want us to understand that God wants every one of us to come into life. So, final thought, and then we'll just wrap it up and throw it open for questions. Don't drive into either of the two ditches. Don't drive into the ditch of everyone's going to hell unless they pray a prayer. Don't drive into the ditch of God's going to save everyone anyway. Both of those are wrong. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So you have to come through Jesus, but we don't get grace by following rules. We don't receive life by, by law. And so therefore we cannot, um, we cannot fall into the opposite ditch as well. Um, I already recommended Michael Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm. I, I recommend N.T. Wright's book, How God Became King because it gives us a much clearer picture of what Jesus was achieving with his life as well as with his death. And I also recommend Brad Jersak's book, A a More Christ-Like God. Um, Most of what I've outlined for you has has actually been helped by this book, but the two together are are really helpful ways of expanding how we see the atonement. So I hope that's been helpful. I'm drinking from a fire hydrant, but you've got all the references. You can go and take a look. <laughs> Any questions? Thank you for all of you who've chipped in as well. That's been very helpful. Yeah, it was really good teaching, Mark. It definitely was good. I don't think I've ever heard it put quite that way. Some real depth. You know, I was thinking about it because there's a counterpart to the word atonement, and that counterpart is the word remission, and they both carry a lot of weight. Mm-hmm. And atonement, you do see it a good bit in the Old Testament, and it does have an idea of covering, yep. as if the blood covered. That's why the sacrifice had to be repeated on a yearly basis, mm-hmm. because their sins were covered. Right. Whereas remission, in some respects, more deals with the New Testament, and remission is a cleansing as though it never was. Yes. And that is so powerful, mm-hmm. you know, because when I come to God, that sin nature is gone. Right. You know, and I don't have to feel condemned and all these things. I know that I've been made right by, uh, you know, by the blood and that I'm cleansed. Yes. And that I can have an so audience with him because of that. Remission yeah. is cleansing as I never was. And what was the other one? Well, the other one was just the atonement. They're kind of a counterpart words, you know. Yeah. They both speak of different aspects of redemption. So the atonement, particularly in the sense of the day of atonement, is a covering of sin and a carrying away of sin, mm-hmm. but not in the permanent way that remission deals with it, where it's as if it never happened. Mm-hmm. So remission's only possible after the one who can't die dies. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. That's why the blood of bulls and of goats could never permanently pay the price. That's right. The, the problem for us, well, I say the problem for us, the problem for me is I look at the old sacrificial system and think of it in terms of prices 
of you know how many how many bulls do I have to offer to be right, right. you know I'm I'm a bigger sinner so I need right. a bigger bull kind of idea <laughs> you know <laughs> and then I carry that over to well Jesus must have been the biggest bull ever uh, and therefore he was able to pay God enough to buy a, buy me off if you like which is 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 only a small fraction of what the atonement is so yay. <laughs>